Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Flu season is here, but it hasn't fully impacted Hamilton just yet. What's the latest in the ongoing dispute between the province and Ontario's optometrists? COP26 has ended with a deal, but is our global climate change action plan good enough? Do you have your winter tires on yet? We'll talk about that. Women donate a bigger percentage of their wealth to charity compared to men. And Amazon founder Jeff Bezos has a wild vision about our future in space. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Flu season is in uh, full effect, or at least we're being told. <laughs> uh, last year, the flu was really non-existent. And that was in large part thanks to our efforts to combat COVID-19 that kind of went in hand in hand to keep the flu at bay. Here to talk about the flu season and how it is affecting or not affecting Hamilton is Dr. Nin Tran, the Associate Medical Officer of Health with the City of Hamilton. Dr. Tran, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. So can we say that the flu season has arrived? Well, this is the time of uh, when flu season typically happens. So it usually starts around any time between end of uh, October and can last as long as towards March. I mean, we've seen Flu season, some start earlier, close to the end of October. Some start uh, later towards uh, December, even like closer to, to January. So it's a bit too early to, to tell, um, you know, um, when flu season is going to uh, happen here in, in Hamilton. But this is the time where, uh, you know, we could see flu uh, starting to circulate. Is, is mid-November usually the time we see some of the first flu infections uh, crop up? Yeah, we, we tend to start seeing at some point in uh, November. Uh, it's, you know, it, that's generally early. Uh, you can sort of get it starting mid-November. Uh, you start seeing it more towards uh, December. But uh, the early start of flu season typically happens in November, around mid-November. Uh, by all accounts, we haven't seen a, a flu uh, transmission or flu case in this community. And, and from what I've read over the weekend, we haven't really seen anything across the province. And that really uh, goes hand in hand with what we saw, or I guess didn't see, last year as well. Yeah, last year was an extreme anomaly. It, I mean, certainly we had COVID, but to my knowledge, we didn't have uh, any lab-confirmed cases of flu at all in Hamilton uh, throughout the the influenza season, which is completely shocking, um, I think it's you know, certainly due to the number of public health measures that we've all implemented. Uh, whether that's uh, staying home when you're having symptoms, hand hygiene, and we've also introduced things such as masking, uh, indoor masking, and and physical distancing. So that that certainly helps with uh, any type of uh, cold viruses. I think this year is a year to watch out a little bit more because we are starting with, uh, especially with the, the COVID vaccine being available, you know, uh, relaxing uh, some of our uh, public health measures or, you know, you know, I know like people uh, across uh, the province have uh, um, gotten a bit tired of, of COVID and uh, are not as diligent as they used to be uh, with these measures. But if, if we can, at the very least, you know, maintain as best as we can these measures and certainly a lot more than we used to do um, a couple years ago. Uh, we should be in a good shape uh, for for other viruses, including flu. And that, that includes also getting our, our flu shot this year as well. 
Dr. Nin Tran is our guest, Associate Medical Officer of Health with the City of Hamilton. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You mentioned there were no cases of influenza in our community last year. Do you expect that to change this year because of the relaxed restrictions? And how many cases would we normally get in a year? Yeah, so in a year, I mean, we've seen um, in any given week, um, from looking at the graph from the last, you know, from 2014 to 2020, uh, lab confirmed cases can go up as high as about 120 in any uh, given week. Uh, again, we, we we know a lot more about COVID. We test a lot more uh, uh, than we did with uh, flu. People usually just uh, you know, didn't often uh, get tested. But I would expect, because we are relaxing measures, that I'd be very surprised if we didn't have a single case of of flu this year compared to last year. I am certainly hopeful that. If we do get, um, or, or when we do get any flu cases, we'll we'll have fewer numbers uh, than we have uh, traditionally. If we continue to to get vaccinated and more in terms of public health measures uh, than we've uh, done in past flu seasons. In saying that, should we still be getting our flu shot? Yes, I mean I got mine a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's it's something again preventable that we can do flu if. If uh, if you happen to catch it, can can also be quite significant uh, in terms of symptoms and and it you know, prior to COVID does contribute to uh, you know potentially about twelve thousand hospitalizations in the country or or you know even up to to thirty five hundred deaths in any given year. So it, it's certainly COVID has our attention and it, as rightly should. It's the immediate threat, but we shouldn't completely forget about um, something like uh, influenza. I know our flu season is usually predicated on how bad it was in the southern hemisphere. Do we have any information on how it went down south? Yeah, so the so uh, Australia has seen some cases uh, this year, but uh, it's certainly a lot less. Uh, they, they used to get uh, you know tens of thousands of cases, and now they're getting uh, in in their flu season closer to the hundreds. Uh, I think the, the context again is is very. Uh, different because when they happen to have their flu season this summer, my understanding is, you know, they had implemented very strict uh, measures against COVID, including locking down their borders, like, uh, you know, a fair amount of stay-at-home measures. So it's it's a bit difficult to compare because we, you know, we are at a time through this flu season where, you know, the, the, the number of public health measures will be presumably less than what Australia did. But uh, so they, they did see some cases. Um, again, hopefully we'll get something similar where we'll, where we'll uh, the magnitude of flu cases this year will be uh, significantly less if we at least maintain uh, the public health measures that we currently have. Okay. And, and as well as we and, and get their flu shot, because what I understand, uh, Australians, um, you know, you know, did have uh, uh to get their flu vaccinations on top of that, too. Excellent. Yeah, let's hope that's the case here in Hamilton and Ontario again. Dr. Tran, thanks for the time today. All right, thank you for having me. That is Dr. Nin Tran, Associate Medical Officer of Health with the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting story, if you've been following this, about optometrists in Ontario and a progressive conservative MPP has added a new twist to this. Uh, she says her own party should be doing more to resolve the ongoing dispute with optometrists in this province. Interesting 
Um, Wrench, if you are a member of the PC party, because the dispute, as I said, is still ongoing. Dr. Sheldon Salaba is the president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. How are you? Good. Yourself? I'm very good, thank you. So where do we stand in this dispute right now? I know it's been going on for (laughs) several months now. What's the latest on this? So we're still waiting for the government to reach out to us to um, indicate that they're now ready to enter a robust negotiation process. So within that, I mean, there's a number of sticking points on the table, including the fee structure from what I understand. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Up until this point, the government um, hasn't spent very much time with us on this issue. We had um, some brief interactions with them back in August. And, uh, you know, Dr. Marto, as you mentioned in your opening statements, um, what she spoke about was actually quite, um, quite accurate in how the government behaved. There was um, a two-hour meeting on August 5th. And that was the first time that they had met with us, um, you know, since uh, December of 2020. And following that, there were two days of mediation. The first day of mediation, the government came um, with jurisdictional data that was out of date by 10 years and completely incorrect. And the second day of mediation, um, you know, what she was stating there about them um, leaving us for nine and a half hours is... um, is exactly accurate. So um, we need the government to engage in a real negotiation process with us. This is a problem that has developed over the last 32 years, and we really need their engagement and commitment to work earnestly to try and fix this problem. Hey, you mentioned uh, Guy Lamarto. Uh, she also is an optometrist, but a PC MPP who says that uh, you know the government has to do more uh, to... Um, uh, you know, make this deal happen. Uh, so at the end of the day, what do optometrists want? And, and is the government just saying, hey, the status quo is fine? Um, yes, they are saying the status quo is just fine. They don't want to be um, dealing with this issue, is I think what, um, what we're seeing here. But um, what we're asking for is for the cost that it covers, what it costs us to um, provide OHIP-insured optometry services in this province. We want the government to pay those costs. We know they're around $80, and on average, the government pays um, $45 for those services. And uh, we want them, if they're going to say that they, they fund OHIP services for children and seniors, we want, to, we want them to pay what it costs to provide those services. Interesting. Um, we mentioned PC MPP Guy Lamarto with her statement about, you know, the, the government is using, quote, heavy handed tactics in this standoff. How nice was it for to, to hear that from a member of the party? Well, you know, she said some things there that um, we weren't at liberty to uh, to disclose because of the process that we had been in with government. But now that she has, um, they're they're absolutely true. You know, the government. Um, the government is trying to impose the offer that they want to provide us, and that still would leave us um, subsidizing about $30, $30 of the cost to provide an eye exam in the province. And uh, that doesn't really change anything at all. Um, we have to take a deeper dive on this with the government together in order to get it fixed. And, um, you know, they, they provided a retroactive payment for $39 million, 
um, to us back in October. 2,200 optometrists sent them letters out of 2,500 um, stating that they didn't consent to the money being deposited into their account. They sent it to 150 deceased and retired optometrists because it was spanning a time frame over a decade. And optometry paid over a billion dollars during that decade um, to provide eye examination services to the public. So the the number that they imposed and what um, really transpired aren't even close to each other. And it does nothing to create a sustainable eye care system for um, people in this province currently. So, you know, I think that's um, fiscally mismanaging taxpayer money. And um, it's nothing that we asked for. We want to build a sustainable system for people in the province moving forward. Dr. Sheldon Salaba is our guest, president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. We're chatting about the ongoing dispute with Ontario's optometrists and the provincial government. What has been the impact on patients? You know, you're seeing likely at this point, uh, over 800,000 people have had their OHIP appointments cancelled or being unable to book. There's likely about 20,000 referrals for cataract surgery that haven't happened in the last two and a half months. So the impact is huge. Like this is, I I find it shocking that the government is being so cavalier with with the public's health care. They're essential medical services that people in this province rely on in order to function in their daily lives. And uh, I think the government um, needs to act less heavy-handedly more responsibly and um, you know Andrew Horvath sent um, Christine Elliott and myself a letter last Wednesday and I responded to that letter and gave Christine Elliott my personal phone number Um, I think it's now time for them to actually do the right thing pick up the phone and uh, let's get into a solution space to fix this problem are you optimistic a deal can be reached sometime soon well, I would think so. I mean, every other province in Canada has figured out to how to resource um, optometry services, but Ontario is the outlier. Um, Ontario is restrictive in um, different types of billing models that could be applied to this problem. And, uh, you know, I think the biggest problem is that the Ministry of Health doesn't understand um, the role that we play in the healthcare system, and they need to start acknowledging that. We've had scope expansion a decade ago. We're able to write prescriptions for drugs. We treat glaucoma, eye infections, all kinds of things. And um, I think the government needs to start acknowledging that we are playing a huge role in the delivery of eye care in the province. Because um, what's happened now is the eye care system in Ontario is completely ground to a halt. Dr. Salaba, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That is Dr. Sheldon Salaba, President of the Ontario Association of Optometrists, giving us uh, his side of the ongoing dispute with the provincial government. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson hailing the UN Climate Change Summit in Glasgow as, quote, a game-changing agreement that sounded the death knell for coal power. And he says the deal means moving towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Almost 200 countries have put their name to the Glasgow Climate Pact, marking a decisive shift in the world's approach to tackling climate emissions, setting a clear roadmap to limiting the rising global temperatures to 1.5 degrees, and marking the beginning of the end 
for coal power. Johnson also defending the Glasgow PAC's watered-down language about phasing down coal instead of phasing it out, saying it did not make, quote, that much of a difference. So what's in this deal, and are there feasible goals in the pact? Julie Levin is a senior climate and energy program uh, envir- with Environmental Defense and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Julia. Morning. So we have a deal, and uh, it, I mean, it almost cracked at the end, but it has been, you know, put together in at least at 200 countries, nearly 200 countries agreeing to this. Um, is there a sense of relief? Are there good things here? What's your reaction to it? Yeah, there's, you know, I'd say overall, um, it delivered tentative and incremental progress. So in terms of relief, if you ask the um, people from vulnerable countries, from civil society who are on the front lines of the climate um, emergency, relief is not what they're feeling. They're feeling anger and they're and they're feeling fear. Um, so when we talk about the success of this year's COP, we should start with what was this COP trying to achieve? And it was really trying to keep alive the goal that countries committed to when we first signed the Paris Agreement in 2015 to keep global warming limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, because we know that's the threshold beyond which we get into catastrophic and irreversible um, climate impacts. And it didn't do that. It didn't deliver what is needed to reach 1.5 degrees. Um, Going into COP, we were on track for a really devastating 2.7 degrees of warming. That's come down with some of the promises, but we're still at well over two degrees, which as vulnerable leaders from vulnerable and developing countries told us throughout the two weeks of COP, that's a death sentence for people in their country. Um, On the, what it did deliver, one of the key things was a commitment for countries to come back in 2022 with revised 2030 greenhouse gas reduction targets. We know this is a critical decade for reducing our emissions in half globally. We know the all of the 2030 commitments in place so far don't get us there. So that was one really important promise that countries made. And now it's up to us to keep our governments accountable and do the hard work of pushing for real aggressive change at home. So countries show up next year and actually give us the aggressive climate action the world needs. For the first time, a uh, climate change pact of this nature includes language that asks countries to reduce their reliance on coal and roll back fossil fuel subsidies. Is that one of the biggest takeaways of this uh, Glasgow climate pact? For For sure. It might seem really strange given that we know that fossil fuels are the cause of the climate crisis, but this is the first time we actually see that being acknowledged in a COP outcome and steps in place to address fossil fuels. I mean, for 25 years, we've basically been trying to put in place solutions without addressing the real causes, which is like if we were holding um, a convention on how to deal with the pandemic and never mentioning the COVID virus. So we're start. This is a big step in the new direction of actually addressing the elephant in the room in the climate change conversation, which is the role of oil, gas, and coal. Of course, only coal is mentioned in terms of a phase out or phase down. So oil and gas still still isn't included, and that means we're still not going to be on track for what we need to be doing. Um, but it, it was a first step, and on subsidies, um, that was also a great thing to include. We know that. Countries are bankrolling the oil and gas sector, and that's incompatible with climate action. We know Canada is actually one of the worst performers on that account. The unfortunate bit was that on Wednesday, the language was way stronger and said eliminate all 
fossil fuel subsidies. That got watered down. The word inefficient was added in the final text. And that's a really sneaky word that has let Canada and other countries justify continuing to, to bankroll the very activities that are driving the fossil fuel sector. So we need to also make sure countries aren't using these loopholes that were introduced in the in the decision text to get away from doing the real hard work. We're chatting about the Glasgow Climate Pact at the end of COP26 with Julia Levin, Senior Climate and Energy Program Manager with Environmental Defence. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. I mentioned India. Just before the pact was adopted, India requested that uh, the deal call on countries to, and you referenced it, phase down as opposed to phase out unabated coal. Is that a Boris Johnson saying that that's not a big difference? Is it a big difference in your mind? The, the big difference is when countries collectively, United States leading in charge, agreed to use the word unabated coal. So they're only talking about coal that, that doesn't have this carbon capture technology included. The issue with carbon capture, we've been trying this for 40 years. It hasn't been working. It's always paid for by government because it's so expensive and no private actors will touch it. Um, so this still, it's one of those other, it's another loophole, like the word inefficient, that lets some um, some coal continue with a, you know, kind of a fairy tale solution that actually isn't meaningful in terms of the climate crisis. But there's a, we're seeing a lot of blame for on India for, for the language, but it really was, India asked for an equitable treatment of all the fossil fuels, and the United States and other countries refused to treat oil and gas the way coal is treated. Um, so really, the blame lies there. And as well, one of the biggest issues with this COP was the lack of equity. So developing countries who you know are not responsible for the climate crisis yet feeling its brunt um, have been asking and, be, and have been promised funding from rich countries on one hand to help adaptation, to help adapt to a warming planet, as well as reach their own climate targets. And that's a set of money that was decided on in 20, 2009. Um, and still hasn't been delivered, but they were also asking for help with the loss and damage. And that there's, we know that a certain amount of bake, warming has been baked in. We know that there are real consequences, whether those be natural disasters, whether those be loss of um, farming land, that countries now um, deserve to be compensated for by the richest countries like Canada who have caused the climate crisis. So those countries were asking for a new financing mechanism in the final decision text to deal with the loss and damage and rich countries refused, which is the equivalent to getting into a car accident and asking the passengers to pay. <laughs> uh, we got about 30 seconds. The U.S. and China uh, have announced a joint declaration to cooperate on climate change measures. Is the impact going to be tangible? The, the impact very much be tangible in many ways. These are the two largest economies, both of them the largest emitters. And what I found really interesting and important from that, from their agreement, is the focus on the 2020s. This is the critical decade. This is the decade where we need to collectively slash our emissions in half. And, and that was an important signal to the rest of the world that our two largest countries um, will be will be focusing on the next decade. And, and it sets an important signal to countries like Canada that we also have a lot of work. Um, in terms of making sure our 2030 pledge puts us on track for doing our fair share and taking real action this decade. Julia, thanks for the time today and enjoy your day. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Julia Levin is a Senior Climate and Energy Program Manager with Environmental Defense, giving us her thoughts on the COP26 Pact. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast.
from 900 CHML. Well, it's that time of the year again. We're in November. It's winter tire season. I just got my winter tires put on my wife's vehicle the other day at Mountain Tire up on the mountain. Go see them on concession. Say hi to Mike, uh, Brian, and Jay and the gang, and uh, they'll treat you right. Uh, But there's a new survey as well from Malaysia for the Tire and Rubber Association of Canada. That shows 79% of Canadian motorists believe driving a vehicle equipped with winter tires have saved them from a road accident or injury. So here to chat about that is Carol Hashu, the president and CEO of the Tire and Rubber Association of Canada. Carol, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Uh, 79%, is is, is that viewed as a high number, a low number in terms of people with winter tires thinking that, yeah, that rubber on the road saved my life potentially or saved me from getting into an accident? Well, obviously, it's a very strong number. Mm -hmm. And if we want to uh, drill down into the Ontario survey results, uh, that number shows that uh, 73% of Ontario drivers now ride on winter tires. So that's uh, great news for wintertime road safety in our province. But on the flip side, that means that there's about 25% of Ontario motorists who still don't understand that uh, winter safe driving um, is afforded by winter tires due to the superior traction and stopping power. So I guess uh, our association has a little more work to do to uh, encourage uh, this 25% to switch over to winter tires. Is is the stumbling block basically, does it come down to price points? You know, it's just here's an added cost. I, you know, I maintain my vehicle. I do oil changes and I wash it and I do this and that. I don't really need winter tires. Uh, Great question. Um, The study results showed that the most common reasons for not using winter tires um, is the belief that all-season tires provide sufficient traction. That was cited by just over 50%. Uh, Just under a third cited cost. And then about 25% cited uh, reduced driving in, in the winter. So to those who are resisting winter tires uh, because of that, uh, of the cost, so about 30%, um, I would just sort of offer these uh, counterpoints. There are uh, cost savings associated with winter tires in the following areas. Number one, they can reduce fuel consumption by as much as 5% due to superior traction. So, so that's a plus. Um, as well, the cost of winter tires are tempered by prolonging the life of your vehicle's summer or all-season tires. So that saves a bit of money over time. Another important consideration is that some insurance companies offer premium reductions for using winter tires. I know that uh, my insurance company does, so that is something that everyone should check out with their insurance provider. And uh, I think even some tire dealers and retailers may offer uh, terms in terms of paying for your winter tires tires over time. So I think the important message uh, for, for those who are citing cost as a, an impediment, uh, you've got to weigh that cost against the safety benefits of having that terrific traction and stopping power that dedicated winter tires provide. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Carol Hashu, President and CEO of the Tire and Rubber Association of Canada. We're chatting about putting on your winter tires. Uh, you mentioned all season. We also have winter tires as well as all weather tires. What's the difference? Yes, uh, drivers do have three basic tire options for winter. So, so let's just dive in a, a little more. So, you have your um, all season tires, 
And uh, the challenge uh, with that tire is that you're going to have longer stopping distances and loss of traction when the temperature falls below 7. And that's because the rubber compounds in these all-season tires, they harden and grip less efficiently when you get to that cold temperature. Uh, The second choice, as you noted, is the all-season tire with the 3P mount three peak mountain snowflake symbol or 3PMS for short. So that does meet the definition of a winter tire and it does provide moderately better traction than the all seasons. But these tires are designed for year-round use and only occasional snowfall. So they may not provide the adequate grip for optimal traction and stopping in the harsher winter driving conditions. And then of course we have the dedicated winter tires and why are they the best choice? Those tires have softer rubber compounds and provide optimal traction and stopping power in even, you know, the coldest uh, temps and the worst snow conditions. So if you want to think about it, um, I like to think about uh, the options as being good, better, best, or if you're on the Olympic podium, bronze, silver, and gold. I think the conclusion is really that dedicated winter tires are hands down the safest and best choice for drivers. We've got about a minute. What should we look for in a good winter tire, or are they basically all the same? Uh, Well, every tire producer is going to have something uh, unique or different about their tires. So I think uh, really um, it's it's up to drivers and their tire professionals at their local tire retailer uh, or dealer store. And, and I would often, this caution, when it comes to winter tires, just as in previous years, it's best not to wait till the last minute because you may not get your preferred a choice of winter tires. So if you are in the market, you should reach out soon. Uh, your tire retailer is standing by to help. And as you already noted at the top of uh, our chat, uh, if you haven't booked your uh, appointment to switch over, uh, you want to get on that ASAP. We've been lulled in the GTHA a little bit with the nice fall temps here, but we know like uh, all good things come to an end. Winter is around the corner. Book that appointment for the switch over and talk to your tire retailer about your options for uh, winter tires. Absolutely. Carol, really appreciate the time. Drive safely this winter. Thank you so much, Rick. Same to you and your listeners as well. Thanks again to Carol Hashu, President and CEO of the Tire and Rubber Association of Canada. The uh, 2021 Canadian Consumer Winter Tire Study shows that 76% of Ontario drivers with winter tires say protecting their family is the top reason for investing in winter tires. Among those not using winter tires, 56% think all seasons are good enough. 29% say cost is the reason for not using winter tires. And 24% say they do not use winter tires because they do not drive much in the winter. That's, uh, I, I guess, a good scenario for those uh, drivers. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today is National Philanthropy Day, and uh, it appears that men have some work to do to catch up to women, that is for sure. And here to talk about that and a little bit more is Marvie Ricker, Managing Director with Family Philanthropy and Legacy at BMO Family Office. Marvie, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Rick. My pleasure. So we understand through a study back in 2019 that was conducted by BMO Wealth Insights that women give about twice as much of their wealth away through philanthropic initiatives compared to men. So us men have some work to do. Why are women so giving? Well, men are giving too. Um, 
and you know, when you look at the percentage, of course, women have less money, and so maybe the percentage looks larger. But I think also women are closer to um, the problems of uh, everyday families and uh, are therefore in a, um, more likely to be empathetic and uh, generous, uh, both in time and in money, to, uh, to help families on a, on a very basic level. So they they have uh, more of a compassionate gene given their life experiences. I guess that's may, maybe uh, a good way to put it. Yes, too. life experiences and also just their role because women are the caregivers, caregivers for their children, for their parents, um, their husbands if they're not well. So I think it sort of falls on women to try to look after uh, people. Very much so. We know the pandemic has certainly affected all of our lives, uh, some greater than others, of course. In uh, When it comes to philanthropic initiatives, how has the COVID-19 pandemic implemented or, or impacted that space? Well, um, as you say, COVID has really impacted all of us, but it has impacted women even more because more women have lost their jobs than men during this uh, period. Also, if there, you know, as you know, if there are two people in the family who are earning money and there are children, somebody has to stay home to look after the children often, and more often than not, it's the wife. The other thing that's happened is that the tensions within relationships have become much worse uh, during COVID. And uh, women, again, are the ones who have sort of suffered from that. So a lot of social issues have been created um, during the COVID period that focus on the needs of women and their children. Marvie Ricker is our guest, Managing Director of Family Philanthropy and Legacy at BMO Family Office. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. When it comes to tools and resources uh, available to those women who do want to give to their community, do want to make um, a, a difference in their city, what's available to them? Well, um, every large city, um, and maybe even smaller cities, that's all I know, uh, do um, sort of a, 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 some research into what are the uh, problems in their community um, during that time. So if you want to know what are the biggest uh, issues and needs in your community, uh, go on the website of your uh, local community foundation, and there will be lots of information available. Also, if you just sort of listen to the news, you will hear a lot of organizations mentioned as being involved in helping women, whether it's uh, Afghan rep- refugees or whether it's people with mental health issues or uh, homeless people. And just look into those organizations, um, look at their websites, go and visit them, become familiar with them so that you know uh, whether this is an organization that you trust and want to support. My guess is because of the financial ramifications of the pandemic, we're just not giving as much as we used to. Um, but for those who are, it's just, a, you know, another tremendous kind of outpouring of, you know, emotion and compassion and all these feelings that an individual or a group or, or a company would have in their community. For those who are thinking about giving uh, and don't know, you know, where to start, can they call uh, places like BMO to say, hey, you know, I have an idea. Can we work with you or or what kind of advice or tips do you have for them? Well, um, we put out um, a publication for our clients 
to help them um, navigate the system, to uh, figure out where uh, they should be thinking of giving during the COVID period and like what has COVID really uh, affected in our communities. So we'd be happy to make that available uh, to people. And I, I think almost anyone in the social sector would be very knowledgeable uh, these days uh, as to where the greatest needs are. So I, I think it's just a question of starting to look and ask. Marvie, on this uh, National Philanthropy Day, I really appreciate you giving us some of your time today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This story certainly caught my attention over the weekend. Not not necessarily because it's going to impact me or my life or maybe even my children or my grandkids or even great-grandkids or even great-great-great-grandkids, if you're still with me. Uh, billionaire Jeff Bezos, he's the founder of Amazon and, of course, has his Blue Origin Rockets uh, going into the atmosphere, uh, is apparently developing a moon lander, he announced this uh, last Thursday, that could deliver cargo and astronauts to the lunar surface by 2024, which really isn't that far away. We're talking three years. But going to the moon is just the start of his overall vision for outer space. What he is envisioning is because, you know, years from now, we're talking decades from now, if not hundreds of years, he says we're going to outstrip any reasonable source of energy on Earth. So really, there's not going to be any reason to be here. So what does he think will happen or should happen? Well, he believes that billions, if not trillions of people will be moving into space colonies, massive space colonies uh, just beyond Earth. And we would travel to Earth as sort of a vacation. A remember when we used to live here? <laughs> Paul Delaney is a retired astronomy professor at York University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Rick. Does this sound like uh, science fiction or, or is this a remote possibility? I think yes to both. Um, there's no question that uh, Jeff and uh, his arch rival, uh, Elon Musk, are singing similar tunes as far as the the near-term future, let alone the long-term future, of humanity in space. But it is a little science fiction-y. Uh, uh, you, know, you read Arthur Clarke and the others out there, and they talk about space habitats, and they talk about a mass migration. I'm not convinced that there's going to be a mass migration anytime, anytime soon, but to think that our destiny lies in space, to think that there will be an increasing number of people living off-world, being born off-world, I think he's spot on the money. And I think that's, you're going to see that happening before the end of this current century. So he envisions millions of colonies. They'd be about, I don't know, miles long, holding about a million people or more each uh, on the moon, maybe on an asteroid in other parts of the solar system, um, so you're suggesting this might not necessarily be pie-in-the-sky thinking, pardon the pun. Yeah, <laughs> very good. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I, as I say, I really do think it, it's going to happen. Uh, we are obviously in an era now where we're seriously talking about a settlement on the moon. Uh, you indicated the lunar lander by 2024. NASA, in its Artemis program, which is expected to have people on the moon by 2024, 2025, is a partnership with groups like Blue Origin and SpaceX. 
Uh, they are developing collectively the hardware that will get us back to the moon. Artemis 1 will fly in February of next year, their first uh, return lunar vehicle uh, that we've launched um, you know, in nearly 50 years. Uh, so the, the activity in space is definitely ramping up. And with people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk pushing that envelope, I think it's going to come quicker. I mean, Blue Origin wants to put their own space station habitat, uh, I think they're calling it Blue Reef, uh, in orbit by 2030. Not sure he's going to make 2030, but it's going to happen probably within the next 10 to 15 years to take advantage of all of the activity, space-based activity, that these billionaires, the private entrepreneurs, are engaging in. Paul Delaney is a retired astronomy professor at York University, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. So let's focus on the moon itself. If we were to set up a colony on the moon, how would that work? What would it look like? How would it be built? Great questions. Uh, I, I can give you the leading contenders, but my crystal ball is still a little foggy. Uh, I, I think you are going to see the sort of you know, traditional science fiction habitats initially on the moon. That is to say, fabricated uh, dome structures that will be carried up and assembled on the moon in the very near future. So a very modular type of habitat, which will only hold sort of numbers of people initially, like we see on the International Space Station. So, you know, five, maybe 10 at the most, but more likely in the vicinity of five initially. But as we gain expertise in building on the moon, you know, think back to the International Space Station. We didn't have seven people on board initially. It was twos and threes because we were still learning how to uh, evolve in that habitat. I think we'll be cautious on the moon, but you will see as the, the years go by an expansion of those settlements, perhaps into underground what we call lava tubes to protect us from the radiation to be able to see mounds of, of space rock and, and debris put around these habitats, again, to protect us from the space uh, environment. So I think we're going to see a fairly low-key traditional modular habitats initially. But stay tuned. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we begin to uh, really take advantage of the lava tubes beneath the lunar surface. Sounds amazing, Paul. Thank you very much for the time. Enjoy the rest of the day. You bet, Rick. Take care. That is Paul Delaney, retired astronomy professor at York University. Uh, who knows? Sometime soon we could be living on the moon. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.